Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, the podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with a platform to perform. I'm your host, Todd Davidson, and on episode 23 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I have Brighton Ladies Strength and Conditioning Coach, Hamza Ahmed. How are you doing today, Hammy? Yeah, really good. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. My pleasure. So for those who those who don't know you, do you want to give a little bit of background to yourself? So why do you do what you do? So thanks for the introduction, Todd. Um, thanks for having me on again. Um, so my name is Hamza, as uh, introduced. Uh, most people call me Hammy. Um, I've been within the strength and conditioning game now um, going on nearly 10 years. So I graduated from Ramsey University in 2009 and kind of one of the modules I had was exercise performance in my second year, um, which really triggered my interest in S&C and all things to do with sports performance um, at the very top level. So like every strength and uh, conditioning uh, person who comes out of university now, I wanted to go straight in at the top, be training you know Usain Bolts and all that kind of stuff but obviously as most of us know that takes a while to get there and there are several avenues to get there so kind of my passion is making people what they call fit for purpose the best they possibly can be for their sport and be specific to their sport so working with Brighton ladies currently um, that is a completely different scenario and situation than my previous work in rugby with in men's rugby, working in semi-professional and elite environments. Um, also working currently with a company called Project MVP, who are where we go out and do performance testing in schools, colleges, sporting organizations, and do quite detailed data analytics and feedback to those organizations. Very sound description. I like that a lot. Um, in my previous podcast, I spoke with uh, a chap about uh, how to actually get a job in strength and conditioning. You've mentioned you've got quite a wide and varied background. Uh, what are some of the reasons? And as you said, everyone who goes into or most people who go into strength and conditioning typically, as you said, want to work with Usain Bolt's, Cristiano Ronaldo's. But what do you see as the benefits, for example, of getting experience within cohorts that are completely different to your sort of, I suppose, your dream athletes that you want to work with, if that makes sense? I think it's like the biggest thing for me is the coaching and the approach that you come to, to coaching these guys. Um, there is nothing like trying to coach uh, an amateur athlete or a, or a young athlete who have come up a very long day and are not motivated to be coached in the evening. So one of the typical examples I tend to use is at a club called Blackheath, which is a semi-professional national one tier uh, rugby club, third highest league in the country. Um, typically, people have their nine-to-five jobs, mostly in the city, so highly stressful jobs, starting at 8 o'clock or even earlier in the morning, coming into the training session, which starts at 7 o'clock, so having to dash for the train and get there. Uh, and then more often than not, you're asking them to do a gym session prior to training to finish at nine o'clock to then get back home for 10 o'clock to eventually get to sleep for 11 o'clock and do it all over again. So your ability to coach and communicate to those guys gets tested massively. Whereas in the elite environment, there's a bit more of a luxury because you know, it's their job. It's their full-time job. They come in, they do the work and, um, 
if they don't, they lose their pay. Um, there is some of that in semi-professional sports, but for me, the biggest thing is your uh, adaptability to communicate and coach in several varying environments, which when it does come to, when you do eventually get to that elite environment, you see the luxury they have at that top level. And do you think there's a, I know I haven't written this question down, but do you think there's almost a bit of snobbery when it comes to, I don't know, looking through somebody's CV or speaking to somebody about their experiences? Because I think, for example, have you just mentioned in your example with Blackheath, there's so many skills you develop through that, which you might not necessarily develop if, for example, you're in a professional environment from day one. Um, do you think there's a little bit of... Uh, almost reluctance of people to work with say semi-professional or even amateurs because they're just so focused on working with as you said the Usain Bolts yeah it's um I think there's a snobbery from people but there's snobbery from organizations as well I've found so kind of one of the big things is they look for labels and brands on your CV as you just said so kind of I can't count how many jobs that I've gone and my feedback is I haven't got any big names on my on my CV. Um, so uh, rugby jobs where um, I was confident enough to do the job. I knew that I would do a good job and I've developed enough. But the fact that I don't have an internship at, at Bath or Northampton Saints, I think counted against me massively. Um, and it shouldn't. It really shouldn't. Because if you've gone in an effective change and worthwhile change that's still being used in these semi-professional amateur environments, I think that says a hell of a lot more about the person, the character that you are than a person who's just gone in an intern necessarily at one of these places. Um, yes, you might not understand the culture straight away, the necessarily the environment straight away, but those can be easily learnt things. And you, for me, talking to hirers, the biggest thing I would say is look beyond that bubble of they've had to have worked within this top environment. Look at the person first beyond the CV and understand what they can offer beyond just a name. Yeah, I like that a lot. And even a personal example, I gave in a previous podcast, I had internships with uh, GB Boxing, which was fantastic for developing my, um, I suppose, scientific knowledge of how a program runs in the build-up to the Olympics. But on the flip side of that, I had seven weeks in Germany where I didn't speak the language and it was just an amateur lacrosse team. And it was like, everything from conditioning was or the conditioning work was all on me and I learned more well, just as much in those seven weeks dealing with people who yes there's a massive or there's a much bigger ceiling for physical development but it yeah. doesn't mean that the skill sets any less versus say working with athletes where you are generally generally looking for that one or two percent increase yeah but for me looking at that it just shows that you're willing to take a risk mm. you're willing to put yourself in an uncomfortable situation and really drive your own development in a completely, as you said, you don't speak the language. So that's a huge communication is a huge task just right there. So for me, looking at a CV like that, that's, that's a massive tip for me if I was a hirer. But again, you might have come up against the same kind of issues I have as well. Yeah, very true. So one of the things you mentioned when I said to you, when we were setting this podcast up and I obviously said here's the questions but is there anything you're particularly passionate about topics that you feel you would like to speak on one of the things you mentioned was uh achieving success as a generalist within the job market can you just define for me first and foremost what you believe a generalist is and then we'll dive a little bit deeper into that so one of the things i 
get really quite angry about when people define generalists is that whole thing of jack of all trades and master of none. So you've got little knowledge on several little, several aspects of the area, but can't master anything. And that's just such a bad misconception of, of what I think is a really usable skill. You look at thing, looking back, you look at school, we're not, we're not taught to be specialists in anything, are we? We're taught maths, we're taught science, we're taught English, we're taught all these subjects to make us better, well-rounded individuals. Um, but then as we go on, even as we go on, you might go do a maths degree. There are several aspects to maths, apart from being the worst subject in history, but <laughs> there are several aspects to maths, there's several aspects to science. Yes, you can hone down and specialise in those things. But for me, a generalist is someone who can still have an end goal, but is willing to reach that end goal from several different avenues and paths and understand and develop themselves really well in those several avenues and have several skill sets. In, in the UK, you look at one of the typical requirements of a job is you must have experience in a multidisciplinary team. And for me, if you go in as a specialist, that's one of the things you're missing. You might have worked in an elite environment, but you've kept yourself to your bubble. And in the UK, I don't think there are really, within the SNC, it's not like America. You know, where in America, you've got a specific strength coach, a specific speed coach, a rehab coach. Or I haven't actually seen that many in, in the UK. I've seen rehab, but also you look at typical football description is sports scientists, but you end up doing the strength and conditioning as well as all the, the monitoring, the load and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah... A generalist, you've you're built. We're built to be generalists, and I think people shouldn't look down on 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 a generalist as a person who doesn't have exceedingly good knowledge in one particular area. You can still have a preference to an area as a generalist, but you're more well-rounded because you can deliver on several areas. The amount of times I've been told on a match day, "Okay, you're going to be the water boy today," or "Can you go warm up the goalkeepers? Can you do this? Can you do that?" I've gone from water boy to physio to rehabber to goalkeeper warm-up <laughs> all sorts and that's that's developed me massively as a coach and I really um I'm so passionate about learning about other people's expertise that will help me drive my practice and my knowledge forward so yeah hopefully that explains it <laughs> no, I, I like that a lot because to me and almost a similar analogy is uh generally speaking i would say athletes when they're in the strength and conditioning suite they'll need some form of squat hinge push pull whatever uh so other people looking in might be like why is i don't know a hockey player doing a very similar program to a rugby player doing a very similar program to i don't know a basketball player and you're like just because these skills are general doesn't mean that they're no good um and it's almost like you've either got to be general and you're in this general box and as you said it almost gets stereotyped or misinterpreted as jack of all trades or you're in this specialist box and it's oh we're either doing i don't know a rugby specific program or a basketball specific program or we're just doing the same thing for everyone and of course neither are uh, neither are strictly true i think you'll know yourself it's always going to be an amalgamation of things isn't it you've got um so yeah, you've got coaches like Al Dietz where he'll go through the whole eccentric, concentric potentiation and do a really specific things. It's not practical for most people in the environments that you're in. And yeah, 
every program has to start with a general preparation phase anyway you don't just dive straight into your specifics you don't just drive you can't dive straight into a, a really hard velocity based program because at the end of the day you're just going to break your athletes even if you are a specialist in velocity you have to start with the general preparation stuff as you said yeah and i think that comes back to what you said about for example you you might have a background in track and field so you might perceive yourself to be a specialist in, I don't know, developing speed. But as you yeah. said, if you've not sprit this um, current situation with COVID is a good example. You might be a speed specialist, but then if your athletes haven't trained for, I don't know, six months or whatever it is, and you come back on the first day and right, right, we're doing 40 minute sprints because I can coach max velocity really well. And then all of a sudden you've got a few hamstring tears in your team. Yeah, 100%. If we will sort of come full circle on the generalist specialist uh, questions I've got in a second, but uh, just because uh, it seems like an appropriate uh, segue to go down. So you mentioned obviously about being the trend conditioning coach for Brighton ladies. What's the current situation with you guys? Are you back training? Are you got a date in hand or? So the older Academy age group, the under 21s have been back for a couple of weeks training. Um, I've been in and out because it's kind of, they're limited to a bubble of 30 people, including players and coaching staff. So kind of I've, I've covered where one S&C coach has been, been off or um, away. Um, and it's, it's a bit of a weird situation. We're constantly having to fill out questionnaires online in terms of symptoms and stuff like that. So the main age group that I'm involved with are the 16s and the 14s. We were meant to be back this week, but um, to be fair to them, Brighton are taking things incredibly seriously in terms of all the processes and all the um, kind of all the safety measures and regulations that they need to do at a training ground. Um, we're one of the only few clubs where um, everyone bar our first team women are actually based at the training ground. So that that's literally from the Premier League men's all the way down to the um, 11s and 12s women's are based at the training ground. So that's as you can imagine that's a lot of people potentially in at one time um and uh, rightly or wrongly so um the premier league team are given um are the ones who bring the money in at the end of the day so they are the ones who are given really preferential treatment so they're in a big bubble and they've been training back on pre-season training for a while so um hopefully knock on wood we've signed papers now um ready for um, training and testing next week so back to testing so um, during the off season it's been seemed like it's been for bloody ever now um, we stopped in February um, because obviously things were starting to take off in terms of infection rates and all that kind of stuff so um, one of the oddest things I've ever done is deliver sessions via Zoom so I did that for a good six weeks. So I eventually got used to it. <laughs> I can't say it was one of my, it, it was something that I wasn't really nervous about when I first started. But again, it's part of the adaptation. And again, part of the, the beauty of being a generalist that you're willing to give things a go and dive full in. Um, so yeah, I've been doing Zoom sessions and then we've been tracking the girls through uh, Strava as well. Yeah. So they've been doing running. I've been setting up runs plyometric workouts sprint workouts on that but obviously that's me not being able to coach them really it's just been these are the these are the tracks filming myself doing exercises so they can try and mimic um so for me coming back 
it's just got to be really steady to start with. We're hoping to kick off the season at the end of September, depending how schools are. Um, but we'll wait and see on that. So it's, as, as we were saying before, the whole program's got to be really quite basic to start with, incredibly basic. Your key movement's done, executed to the very best and under quite low load and quite low velocity to start with. Um, hopefully their cardiovascular fitness is going to be quite good since kind of tracking through Strava, they've been, they've been running a lot, but obviously running just for running sake compared to running for football and sport is completely different. Um, I think you mentioned it before, hamstring conditioning is the big one early season. So changing surfaces, we typically play on a 4G, although it's a very nice 4G, it's still a 4G at the end of the day. Um, it's quite rare we play on grass. So the surface change, um, especially in terms of low extremity, calves, shins, and then we've got to deal with growth spurts in some of them as well. So it's it's an interesting time and it will be a massive challenge like it is for everyone else, I'm assuming. In this and, time. and with the the transition of surfaces, because obviously that's something you can't control whilst you've been setting the runs through uh, Strava. What kind of considerations do you have to have in terms of your programming when it comes to, for example, bringing the girls back from running on whatever surfaces are local to where they live, versus now you're going to be on the four G? Like, how do you sort of, or do you bleed that in, or how does that work? His volume is my biggest consideration to start with. Um, you can't come in and smash him um, straight away too big, although one of our tests is quite high volume in itself in terms of our cardiovascular test. Um, but it's with, with subsequent training, I'm working very closely with the coaches in terms of setting um, intensities. So we look at um, pitch size, um, player density within the pitch size, so how much... How many players are within that pitch? Um, kind of contact is the big one to start with because we, um, unfortunately, last season, kind of early on, um, we had quite a big incidence of non-contact injuries um, to start with. Um, so typical ones with girls, obviously ACL. So we had one ma- major ACL rupture. Um, poor girl was the second time in the space of two years that she had it. And then we had a few ankle Ankle sprains, again, non-contact ones, which um, as, as a coach is a bit annoying because it's the ones you should be avoiding. Contact ones is a bit harder to avoid, but non-contact ones are a bit annoying. Um, so kind of a lot of proprioception work early season. Um, we use a little bit of the FIFA 11 plus module where um, it's not like absolutely gold standard but it's a good level to start at and everyone will start at that level um, no matter how much they've done outside because as much as I've tried to track, I still don't know physically where they're going to be when football gets introduced and the contact gets introduced, the change of direction gets introduced and all that kind of loading gets introduced. Um, We are hoping this year that the under-14s and 16s will have access to GPS as well. So we're able to track that a little bit better in terms of the volume and the intensities. And yeah, there are the good thing about being at a football club or a bar, and there are several ways to monitor, and there's access to all sorts of incredible equipment. Um, and coming from where I, I've come from, where I've had no equipment and no budget, it's it's uh, it's lovely to have. <laughs> so, if we go back to the no equipment, no budget side of things, so obviously 
you're I suppose fortunate in a way that for example all the girls have had Strava you've been able to deliver stuff via Zoom uh, where would you start for say let's say a community coach who perhaps doesn't have a strength and conditioning background like you mentioned the FIFA 11 plus uh, what kind of advice would you give to say community coaches who don't either have the equipment maybe don't have the SSC knowledge sorry that's okay. Um, yeah. So where would you, what advice would you give to community coaches who are aware of the fact that their athletes haven't, they haven't had contact time with their athletes as well as for example, perhaps breaking the stereotype of our, or the old school of they've not trained in so long. So I need to beast them to get them back into shape. So I appreciate there's like three questions in one there. Yeah. So like I'll start with just the last statement, the old school beasting, is not going to do you any favours anytime soon. So you need to get out of their mentality. Yes, you might have, it might have worked for you. I think this is part of the issue with um, coaches in general, not even the community ones, but really strong coaches I've worked with in the past who worked at a high level. That mentality of early season, there needs to be a high volume running, high volume intensity, physically, especially in sports like rugby, for example. If you haven't had contact in six to seven months, you do not want to go straight into contact afterwards. It's, it's a recipe for disaster. Um, you might get away with it once, but something will catch up with you later on in the season. Um, to monitor, I think the biggest thing is you've got to keep your sessions, you've got to have a goal to your sessions straight away. Whether it's you want, uh, if you want a, you want quite high volume of running, you've got to then look at keeping them game related. I'd say just doing laps and just doing shuttles and stuff like that is really boring for players. If you can do small sided games or larger sided games where you put conditions on for players to complete a lot of running, they're probably more willing to do that. And then there's lots of breaks as well where you can get your coaching points across. You can set up new conditions and add layers on top as you go, go across. Um, and the simplest monitoring tool anyone can do, anyone can can um, get is an RPE from players. That, that even if you're not coaching, if you're not data-driven or you've got no SNC experience, hold up a sheet. That's all you have to do. Get them to point at a number. You take those down. Take the average over a week. If the average has changed drastically over the couple of weeks, then you know you either need to pull back or potentially you've got a bit more room to put put down the accelerator. Oh, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. It's always inter- it's always a good one for coaches because, uh, as you said, with old school coaches who've got this idea of, oh, well, back in my day, I don't know, we used to do three of these, five of these, whatever, whatever, um, and thinking, oh, I think it'll be easy because, oh, in my day it was easy versus, oh, God, you're all giving me nines and tens here and this is meant to be easy. It's a good reality check. Are they, you mentioned about the proprioceptive work, about plyometrics, sprinting, etc. And you also mentioned about the surface change. Is there anything else that you're primarily concerned about, given the fact that if we were in normal circumstances, players might have, I don't know, two weeks off, but they'd still be ticking over. Is there anything else that you'd be thinking about in terms of return to play? Um. Fatigue is obviously a massive one. Um, just the the uh, the sudden, well, not 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 from not doing anything, but from doing less to then having three tra- three training nights. So, 
kind of we are in the unfortunate position because of space we train three nights in a row so it's tuesday wednesday thursday then into a saturday and um any sports person even after two weeks when they've had those two weeks off and they come back into a regular training bout you do your body does react to doms differently it does it does take a bit of time to to adapt after six to seven months of going back into that constant, it, it's going to take time to adapt. So I think well, I spoke to kind of our director of the RTC and we've actually managed to discuss and chop it down to two training nights a week at the minute to then transition into three, hopefully in September, getting towards games. So a gradual build up in terms of the frequency of training. So yeah, fatigue is, again, as I said, the volume is a big concern, but fatigue is a massive concern to me as well because injury tends to happen under fatigue. Um, not trying to jinx anyone or anything like that, but you do stupid things when you're tired <laughs> to, to be as simple as I possibly can. Yeah, don't, don't, don't we all? Don't we all? Um, and in terms of coaching female athletes, obviously you mentioned ACLs, you mentioned uh, ankle sprains. Why are female athletes more likely to sustain these injuries than their male counterparts um so it's a big it's a big it's a big area of study so kind of you look at landing mechanics is a big thing with with female athletes so one of the tests we do is called the landing error score test so it's basically a dynamic test where they land off a 30 centimeter box and they hop out at their half their height and land with two feet so kind of I've been assessing our under 21s and the common thing you tend to see even in these quite well-trained and familiar girls is as you put it, as the magnitude of landing increases, their knees tend to cave in, which we call knee valgus. Um, and a degree of knee valgus, if that occurs beyond a certain degree, that's overstrain on the ACL and MCL and all those kind of ligaments. And it's, and that's where a snap or a rupture or a strain can happen. Um, a lot of the issues are down to motor control. So even though they've been coached and coached and coached, they would not have been coached as much as males up to this age group. So they haven't had the exposure to SNC. So like at, at Brighton, we have a pre-academy which works down to under eights. The youngest age group we have is under 11s, which goes down to about, I think, nine years old. Um, obviously maturation is a massive thing to do with it as well girls mature earlier than boys so the change in limb length is a big thing and then um, kind of one is called the Q angle so the angle from the hip to the interior of the knee that's greater in girls because their hips are wider um, for birthing purposes when they're, when they're older um, and if if that's the degree of that angle is, is, is massive, I can't remember the exact figures, but if it's past a certain point, you're putting huge strain on the ligaments already by just standing still. Um, so a lot of what I do early season is just look at landing mechanics, not over, not over any great magnitude. It's mainly floor-based. So kind of what I call pillar landings, where they're standing on their tiptoes and snapping down into a land yeah. in that good athletic position. Um, deceleration works one big thing for me as well early, early doors because landing is a form of deceleration anyway so they, they match really well um, so yeah the, the prevalence and the science is out there there's loads of it 
but kind of that's my main takeaways from it. Um, and it, it, it does improve. It doesn't mean that every girl is, is destined for an ACL injury. I don't believe that. Do not believe that at all. Um, it's just we've got to be wary that the figures are there and there is, the data is there to tell us that these they are more susceptible to it if we as coaches are not careful about what we're doing. And in terms of your, so what you call uh, pillars or snap downs, um, are like, like they're a brilliant progression because I've found that even landings off the smallest box, you still see that Vargas occur. How do you, um, you mentioned obviously deceleration work and landings going hand in hand. How do you program your deceleration stuff? So deceleration, I'm, as I said, I've worked with the pillars. I've worked from a double foot to a single stance snap. I'd work with maybe once they've got that into a drop jump um, and then work on an acceleration and working into a, maybe a slowdown, not a full-on deceleration, not a full-on stop. So working on changes of speed, basically. So being able to de- decelerate in a way that you can re-accelerate well as well because it's it's quite rare in team sports that they ever really come to a complete stop. It's always a slowdown to change speed, a jog to a walk. Um, I think, like again, maybe old school thinking on my part, but a player shouldn't really ever be stood still in on a rugby pitch, on a football pitch, on a hockey pitch. And it's it's one of these, uh, apart from, I get goalkeepers maybe, but that's about it. But um, it's, it's just moving at different speeds. And then once you get into that, looking at decelerating to re-accelerate at a partial speed or full speed, 180 degree turns, 90 degree turns, 30 degree turns. So it's it's becoming inventive. I, I wouldn't say I have a very strict process. It's very person dependent. If I have to spend more time on the pillar work and the, and the double leg landings and making sure that that's all good and I'm not seeing anything that I'm unhappy with, I'll do that. And it's it's not been strict. Like I've I've been asked in in past times to write curriculums on how to decelerate or how to accelerate or speed mechanics and that. And, and I'd say, yeah, it's all good that I can write this, but at the end of the day, if the kid can't do stage one, how long are you going to keep him on there before you move him to stage two? So, um, yeah, that's how yeah. It's interesting you mentioned about the curriculum thing as well because uh, previously I've written almost I suppose a seven year curriculum and trying to integrate these things in an all girls school and trying to say you know um, physical education and strength conditioning should go hand in hand and it shouldn't necessarily have to look like I don't know a performance academy we can disguise it with game work but I really like what you said in terms of teaching athletes to slow down rather than stop because uh, for, for as long as I can remember until I stumbled across I think it was a Vern Gambetta blog and uh, he said maybe gymnastics, maybe a couple of other sports, but it's rare that you sort of see that double leg landing and a sort of, right, I've come to a complete stop. Mm. And for me, I'm trying to find the balance between overloading, the, I suppose, the eccentric physiologically versus this is what you need to do in a game. Like Even something that I thought was interesting and kind of changed the way I was thinking about things is that, as you said, rarely do athletes stop. And also there's normally always an action that comes after slowing down or after stopping or you know whatever terminology you want to use so I thought that was really interesting because I've tried breaking things down as you said into a curriculum it's like right phase one we're doing landings phase two I don't know we've got a little bit of contact time or whatever it is 
but then you're like, hang on a minute, we kind of need both. And we also kind of need both at the same time because we don't want to get so good at landings. You know, oh, well, I've prevented injury, but from a performance perspective, it's useless on the field because, <laughs> as you said, you're not keeping your feet moving. They can, they can land, but they can't do anything else. They can't take off. They can't re-accelerate. I think, um, yeah, just moving on from that is if you stop completely, often something's gone wrong. <laughs> I'd say it's either you've been stepped or you've been nutmegged or whatever someone's gone past you because you then have to then turn and run so it's that's kind of my thoughts on that also you mentioned uh something which i thought was very good uh about how long do you keep someone at stage or phase one um how have you managed that in a group setting because i can't help but think and it's something i've been guilty of before there's nothing there's probably nothing that makes an athlete feel worse then when you're using your S&C brain and being like, right, well, you lot are ready to move on to say, I don't know, uh, jumping mechanics or whatever it is, whereas you really need to get the landing because you're an injury risk or whatever. There's nothing worse than saying to a certain section athletes, you're staying on phase one, you guys are ready to move to phase two, but at the same time, you want to promote earning the right to progress. How have you dealt with that in your previous coaching experiences? Um, I was really bad at that when I first started. So it'd be, I'd be really rigid and say, no, you're staying at phase one because I said you're staying at phase one. Not realising phase one can look very different from athlete to athlete. I think, say, let's take an RDL for an example. An RDL has several ways to teach an RDL to get to that picture we all have of what an RDL looks like. So phase one of an RDL could be different from athlete to athlete they could be doing it on their knees they could be just doing i don't know hit, uh, legs against the box whatever you want to do but it can be very several variations and i think you just mentioned it there grouping athletes is always a good thing you don't want what you don't want to be singling out especially when it comes to children singling out one person so kind of what i typically do i'm probably giving the game away if anyone does listen to this is with everyone every youth athlete that i coach i assess them in the first they all start on the general preparation it's all the same for them to start because um they need to learn the basic mechanics or relearn them if they've been away from our environment for a bit and then they get grouped and you get the more advanced people doing more advanced exercises and the, the people who are struggling doing less advanced exercises. you don't word it in that way it's just okay you guys are group alpha you guys are group whatever um they soon learn there is differences there for a reason, but they appreciate they're doing it with other people who are struggling as well. Because as much as we dream that every athlete loves the gym, they don't. It's, it's a fact. Uh, footballers, none more so. It's it's a part of something they have to do, but there are the kids who love it, who will be, will be in there all day. There are the kids who just want to do everything on the pitch and and um, and train that way. Um, but for us, is we've we've got to sell it to them to get that buy-in. And um, phase one, if they need to stay on phase one, it's talking to them constantly about it. It's going, look, you want, and then relating it to their sport is why is a counter movement jump good for football? It's it's quite obvious to us, but it might not actually be obvious to a fourteen-year-old why a counter movement jump is. You just relate to it and go, what, what What do you think you're doing when you're doing a header? Then they soon, to re- they soon realize, okay, how do I get better at that? So you need to do these foundational movements to get better at your counter-movement jump, basically. So it's um, the education process is the biggest thing. 
even with the old grizzly adults who don't want to listen to it. And just funny enough on the counter movement uh, jump side of things, how like obviously it's got to seem relevant to their sport, but this is a conversation I was having with a, uh, a chap who's, I suppose his niche market, if you will, is strength and conditioning for goalkeepers, but his brother's a professional goalkeeper and it's kind of him treading the line between, I need to publicize or promote it in this way. So goalkeepers think that's me versus my strength and conditioning brain over here. We just also need a general skill set. So as an example, uh, goalkeepers will never take off on two legs as an example. Um, how do you, whether it's programming, communicating with athletes, how do you tread the line between, for example, we need this physiological adaptation, but in the game we might need, I don't know, a little bit of this. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think you're talking about uh, specifics of movement to sport, aren't you, pretty much? Yeah, and how do you um, how do you tread the line between this is what it might look like in sport and therefore you're going to practice this skill. This is just a general skill you have. You might not replicate it in this way in your sport in action, but we do also need, we kind of need a bit of both, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I've, I've kind of gotten down the years as putting in sport specific sorry i put quotation marks in there if anyone's oh, i like it um, i like it sport i put i've kind of put sport specific skills as part of the programming so for a goalkeeper so we had one last year so she's she's kind of um, she's moved up the age groups now and like potential kind of star in the making so i think in, even in uh, england level they actually have like goalkeeper specific kind of movement metrics and and stuff like that so um with her, it's you do your journey. So kind of as a potentiation exercise, you do your heavy back squat and then you'll do the one leg takeoffs and things like that. And got towards the end where I was introducing like a ball in the gym for her to take off during that, uh, during that kind of secondary superset exercise. So you can do that to get buy-in. I, I wouldn't recommend doing it every time for absolutely everyone, but it's, it's for the athletes that maybe don't quite understand what the general movements are for. And um, also maybe a little bit difficult to get the message across why the general movements are good. So um, I think there's articles all over the shop about sports specific movements and the, the BS of some of them and completely agree with that. But there are some sports related movements. I'd, I'd rather say that are actually very um are easy to put into place to get buy-in from the yeah. athlete and still get that performance outcome and i'm definitely going to steal that phrase sports related because a lot of times i see something that is again using the air quotation marks sports specific and i'm like no that's now you're just playing the sport which is fine if that's what you want to do but as you said it's almost you've got general sports related and then sports specific which for me is playing the actual sport um, yeah. And it's it's one of those where like looking at people's social media accounts is so hard to like I know several high profile S and C coaches who I know know their stuff and know that I don't know. Um, like I saw one about a banded bench press being specific to a boxer's punch because uh, you've got to accelerate through the movement. And I know the coach who put it out there, and I know that he doesn't believe that at all. But unfortunately, you can't just say, "Oh." just squat because you get stronger legs and the punch comes from the legs like that's just unfortunately the world we're living in like people are just going to tune out and you're not going to bring people into your 
organization business to then help them get better if you're almost being too uh snc um driven if that's the uh if that's the right wording yeah it's like the one with the weighted golf head to make your old golf drive even bigger whereas you might have got stronger at your golf drive but you completely messed up the mechanics actually approaching the golf ball which is um yeah it's a funny one just sports specific in itself as a market there are some utterly atrocious things out there there's some reasonably related stuff but as you said if you want to be sports specific go out and play your sport i'd say and I think it's ironic because it always makes me chuckle when people talk about um, the throwers from the Soviet Union and them, for example, throwing weighted shots or whatever. And uh, for example, I'm sure you've probably come across uh, Bondarchuk's system of training and the pyramid. The hardest book I think I've ever had to sit down and try and understand. <laughs> yeah, I, I will never understand. It's funny because a friend of mine sent me a... Uh, a Twitter feed and it was like, which strength and conditioning coach are you? And for example, there's 20 different categories. And one of them was, uh, loves everything by Yuri Verkashansky. And, uh, I, I always think when coaches recommend that book, I mean, dare I say it, there's some useful stuff in there, but it almost comes from people trying to make themselves sound more clever than what they actually are. But I think the one thing that people miss a lot is they see, I don't know, elite athletes doing quote unquote sports specific stuff. And I think I need to be doing that. It's like, well, when you've got a general physical preparation base that is so big, yeah. then that stuff may well be the difference maker. But for you just starting out who can't, I don't know, perform a squat, perform a jump without your knees caving and like you largely need mostly general physical preparation. Yeah, you're describing the bane of my life for youth athletes there. I saw X, Y, and Z do a, a, an 80 centimeter box jump. Okay, Fine can we do box jumps well no <laughs> sorry you can't you can't land so i'm not going to ask you to go explosively off the up to a 60 centimeter box jump and for what reason do you want to do it anyway it's is always my key question um but yeah it's yeah it, i completely agree with the verkashansky thing i know it's a ukca recommended text but i defy anyone who's read that cover to cover mm. defy anyone who's read that cover to cover it's it's not parts are interesting, but my God, it's tedious as well. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because I've seen stuff on social media about, for example, promoting the uh, Bondachuk's system at, with youth athletes. And I kind of, I mean, whether it's just to get people to listen to the message and then coach more people, I don't know. But I always think to myself, if you've not got a general base, then it's just, it's almost pointless. Like just using a personal example, I've lifted for five years and power lifted for the last two, three, and my standing long jump is still going up. And you think, well, you, you got a strength history of five plus years and you're still getting more explosive just by squatting heavy, you know, deadlifting heavy. Now I'm not saying that's the same for everyone, but just as a case study of N equals one, like, if you've got five years of strength history and you're still getting better, then chances are a kid who doesn't know how to move properly, who's say, I don't know, 11 years old, doesn't need to be doing what, I don't know, their basketball idol was doing. Yeah, 100%. Stick to the basics. Exactly. But going back to your generalist thing, I think that when we talk about generalists, it's like, oh, well, generalists, they're jack of all trades. Basic is almost, is defined as or thought of as a lesser thing when you say i'll oh, stick to the basics someone's like oh but 
I want to be basic. I want to do what, I don't know, this basketballist do. It's almost like the word has lost all meaning. So rather than being a fundamentalist, like, this is what we're going to do to get better and build a base. It's almost like, oh, but I want to be better than basic. Or it's almost like basic means average. You know, well, no. I think it's the, it's the time commitment to the basics that people don't like. Is the fact that it takes time to be efficient at squatting and then it takes time to build up the loading that you're going to put into squatting. So why would I do that when I can go and do something that looks cool um, but might mess me up as well <laughs> kind of thing? Yeah, and it's also, as you said, you might have... Uh... Let's, if we go back to the sports specific thing, you might work, I don't know, like I w- used to work with a cricket coach in a school setting and because uh, he played for England, obviously a lot of the young lads who were interested in cricket wanted to go to him for performance benefit, which is, you know, perfectly logical. And he'd work on very specific stuff in terms of catching and whatever. And you think the 15 minutes you do with him, yeah, you'll get that. You will get that initial improvement because, you know, he'll be able to say, you know, you're missing out on putting your body in this position or whatever. So you get a little bit of benefit. And it's like, well, what if I said to you in six months of hitting the gym, we can jump this much higher. And then your 15 minutes will then be even more useful because sometimes I see coaches trying to cue athletes or technical coaches trying to cue athletes. I'm like, do you realize they haven't got the physical capabilities to execute the technique that you're asking them to do? 100% completely agree. If we sort of uh, change tack now and go into uh, another topic that I've planned for the podcast, uh, something called the relative age effect. Yep. So to so people who've never come across the term or perhaps people who've heard of it, but not quite sure what it means, do you want to define what that is first for the listeners? Cool. Yeah, so it's, it's basically, there's a lot of research around it and looking at the disproportionate number of people who are picked for your kind of academies and uh, high performance settings based on the month of the year they're born. So um, for an example, if you've got a, if you look at a year as normal, January to December, if you've got a child who's born in January and a child who's born in December, um, but they're still both 16 years old, um, the child in January is potentially 11 months ahead in their maturation. So me is a, it it happens a lot in talent identification and scouting. So me as a scout will go, will will where I go towards the child born in January purely because I think they've got a physical, they're already physically more mature than rather than the child and ignoring the child in um, born in December. Massive issue with this is how you look at the year. It sounds really stupid, but if you look at the year, January, December, great. If you look at it as a school year, September to June, then things are flipped on their head. So looking, using me as an example, I was born in October um, and I've always been one of the bigger kids in my group. So even my group of my friends now, I'm still one of the bigger guys. Um, so, but with a normal January to the December role, I'll be considered as an athletically or physically poor uh, individual. But then in the school year, I'll be ideal because I'm September to October kind of thing. I'll be uh, quarter one child. So looking at actually physically I'm more mature. So that's an issue right there. Then the other issue is, it doesn't always work one way. 
as me as an example, as an October child, I was bigger than kids who were born in January. Still the same age, but bigger um, in my school years most of the time. So there are a lot of issues, but kind of biggest thing is it's a concept. It's a concept, isn't it? It's just an idea, but it's never an idea that should be used in isolation. The chronological aging has been around in sports for ages and it's, it works and it has its, its pros, it has its cons. Relative age effect has its pros, potential pros and, and cons. So if you meld them together, you get a system that eventually works effectively. Yeah, and I think it's funny because when we talk about relative age effect or like, for example, it almost makes me chuckle when I see stuff like the relative age effect go from, say, a strength and conditioning journal into say mainstream media and it's it's just amusing seeing journalists report on stuff from a journalist perspective but as you said failing to consider uh both sides of the coin um yeah. so don't rather, know, sorry just on that don't no, know you saw that article in the guy from oakham the kid from oakham school so he's a 15 year old kid who is like his highlights were doing the rounds on facebook a couple of years ago and he's he's a beast he's just running everything um and he was he was a i think he was a quarter one child basically and uh scouts were going mental they're saying we've got to get this you've got to get this kid in he went over to try in the nfl all that kind of stuff and he just dropped out he's dropped out of every sport now he's i think he's all at 21 years old or something stupid like that and he's he's dropped out of all sports and that is where i think Age by uh, physical bias and relative age effect is just it's shown in such a stark light, and we just I think as all sports practitioners beyond S and C coaches need to be really careful with that because you just in terms of the kid sporting journey journey nothing reflects how that can be so easily destroyed by people assuming you're one thing that maybe you're not. Yeah, it's funny because, well, a couple of anecdotes on that. But I always think when, I mean, especially rugby, but when people or sports which are more physically dominant, dare I say. um, But I think if you had an 18-year-old having a kickabout with 14-year-old boys, you'd never, if you knew he was 18 and he was having a kickabout with 14-year-olds, you'd never look at the 18-year-old and be like, let's sign him up. So when you know about the relative age effect and stuff like that, or early maturers, you just think, oh, well, We'll see where they are in a few years' time. But um, one of my favourite analogies, I think it was from Joe Eisenman at the uh, Child's Champion Conference, but he did a whole talk on talent ID and different metrics. And like, for example, they looked at the physical metrics, so height, weight, strength, whatever, uh, psychological metrics, so how determined or how much grit somebody has, uh, parents, year they were, uh, sorry, month of the year they were born in. And uh, he likened it to the weather. He's like, if you ask me what the weather's going to be like 10 years from now, I can't really give you an accurate reading. Whereas if you ask me what the weather's going to be like tomorrow, then I do know. So it's like when it comes to talent ID, it's like the ask me in 10 years time and I'll tell you whether or not the kid's going to make it because it's just too fraught with compounding variables or people looking at one slice of the pie. It's a bit of a lottery, isn't it? <laughs> I think sometimes you just, you're, you're hoping he's going to turn out that way. He might not turn out that way, but I do, it's, it's, I'm interested in time ID really, like, but it's, I don't know how they can really make a justifiable guess or like a really confirmed and good uh, prediction of where, as you said, someone's going to be in 10 years time. 
Yeah. And also, I think when it comes to talent ID, as you said, there's a lot of uh, narrow mindedness in the sense of, I don't know, let's say you look at the first team of a given sport and you're like, I don't know, they're all six foot two plus or whatever it is. And then you think, oh, it must be the height that's the given variable. And it's like, well, no, that was the sort of, I mean, again, another analogy uh, that got you in the queue to get in the club, but it doesn't mean you're getting past the bouncer. Whereas if you're, I don't know, five foot four, unless you're Lionel Messi and sneaking in through the back door, it's not, doesn't guarantee you anything. It's just one of the tick boxes you need to tick as well as being ridiculously skilled at the sport itself. Absolutely. So, so you mentioned, obviously, you do a lot of work with youth athletes as well as uh, Blackheath. How do you deal with, especially in a youth setting, um, let's say you've got a group of 20 or 30 kids and you've got early maturers, late maturers, ones who are like biologically older. How do you design sessions in such a way that, I don't know whether fair is the right word, but you're not inadvertently setting up your uh, athletes to fail too much. Yeah, so I got a, a bloody good lesson on that on my first instances in my career, actually. So working in the community rugby, camps were one of the weird settings where you'd always get, so like, <laughs> I always call camps like babysitting services in the summer. So you're basically getting parents dropping off their kids for uh, pretty much a week of rugby coaching and stuff like that um, you'd always get the group of like a really large group of under 14s and then you get the one kid who's like 16 years old and has to turn up to the camp or all under 14s and you know if you look at a group of under 14s there's all sorts of shapes and sizes going on there um, so with them it's about putting constraints into the session so constraints based coaching is one thing I'm a massive believer in for, for everyone, not just the big kids as well. So you can do it with late maturers as well, put constraints in. Um, with early maturers, my main constraints was trying to put them in almost a leadership role. Um, sounds a bit weird, but um, put them in a situation where they are forced to, to lead for their team or their kind of scenario to be successful. So this is kind of talking a bit more field-based coaching more than the gym. Um, the gym's a bit of an easy environment because you can actually isolate them and put them into smaller groups or on their own to train. The field is the more difficult one. So typically mate, the, the, the early maturer isn't, so for example, in rugby, it's you're not allowed to tackle anyone who's below your chest height or anything like that. Um, if there is someone similar size, it's basically when it comes to a tackle situation, you have to tackle each other all the time, things like that. Um, but yeah, just uh, definitely, I think, just putting constraints and really challenging them to be leaders as well as getting the pe the kids who are smaller more involved. So challenge them to somehow find a way to get the kids more involved, whether it's, oh, if you break through, you have to pass it to X, you have to get a number of passes to X, Y, and Z before you can score the points. You have to do this and that. Um, and soon they, they soon realise they have to rely on other things apart from just pure physical uh, dominance. Oh, brilliant. And uh, in terms of parents who are intuitively, like put it this way, if I was a parent, I don't know, I was dropping my son off at an under 14 football or whatever, and there was a kid who I knew was 18, then as a parent, you might, for example, be like, hang on a minute, I'm not happy this is an under 14s football match or rugby or whatever. Um, 
the less their parent knows about the relative age effect or just intuitively it's rugby and they can see somebody is twice the size of their son or daughter. Um, do you think, or if you do think that it's appropriate, how would you approach said conversation whereby a parent approaches a coach and says, for example, I don't know, look at the size of this kid versus my kid. What are you going to do to protect them, if that makes sense? Or do you think that's just parents will just be like, you know, sporty and you get get stuck in sort of thing? Um, it's I'm always open to those kind of conversations, if I'm honest, um, as long as it's a conversation, not yeah. just someone screaming at me. Um, it's it's a difficult one just because if I was ever in that situation and you see your kid who's not, who's against an absolute monster, there's in a competitive situation, your instinct is to say, this isn't right. I can't have my kid go up against this, this child. Um, it's a diff- it's a hard one, if I'm going to be honest, and I don't have a specific answer to it. If it's, it's one of those ones where you have the conversation and make them realise that, yes, this child might be sometimes extraordinarily large for his age, but it gives your son a challenge beyond and has to fit and is for them to figure out a little bit with our help, obviously how to cope with this challenge, whether it's, if it's a competitive game, doubling up on the child for a tackle or making sure they're using a bit more of their technical and tactical nows. And like one of the big, big things I believe with late maturers and what's good about working in that chronological age group, it gives them better skill sets to deal with adversity. Um, so if you're a late developer and you're kind of, I don't know, for example, hypothetically two years behind the rest of your peer group, you've had to find like grit, determination and, and, and calculation skills to figure out um, how to best affect success. Um, and that's one of, the, one of the really big positives, I think, about doing things from a chronological age and um, it just puts a challenge on you and if you figure it out you've become twice the player you are beyond just looking at also late developers spend more time on their technical technical and tactical awareness as well and just for the psychology sake as well you're willing to challenge yourself a little bit more as a late developer you're really willing to to push yourself and strive if that is what you want to do I think um more so than than an early developer, I'd say. Yeah, and I think that, as you said, the, the skill of the coach is almost keeping people in the sport for long enough where, you know, late developers can catch up and uh, late developers don't become so demoralised that the thought process of trying to close the gap, they almost give up on that. Yeah, yeah, time is time is critical um kind of one of the anecdotes i used to hate was he's got a great skill but he's tiny he's never going to make it you're talking about a 12 year old (laughs) like give him time he will catch up um and i've yeah got several examples where some coaches fobbed off a kid purely because on that and they've gone on not to the well two have gone on to quite high quite big heights but not and the other two have gone on to carry on playing and play at a pretty decent level as well. So it's, yeah, for me, when it comes to 
to people talking about physical maturity sometimes i it, it makes my blood boil just because it's so short-sighted and so short-term thinking most of this time it's just oh they're too small now they're never going to be big yeah and it, it's uh, ironic because you'd think that the number one priority of anybody looking at future talent would be how good are they at the skill itself and then obviously this, you might have secondary question because you think you know you could be as big as you want or as built as you want, but if you can't, I don't know, throw and catch a ball, then, you know, what, what good are you? Um, one of the things that's been proposed, and I know obviously it's got its pros and cons, one of the things that's been proposed in terms of uh, limiting the relative age effect is uh, something called biobanding. So for people who haven't come across it, could you give them a brief overview of what it is? So basically biobanding is looking, is not, is, is looking at, uh, matching up people depending on their maturity and looking past the chronological age so technically i could bioband someone at 12 with a 14 year old it's all to do with um, a method of calculating their future development called um, the camus roche method which looks at their parental um, height and weight so the parents height and weight and what future development they can have potentially off their parents' height and weight and a percentage of that. So say it was us two against each other. Um, you're a 12-year-old, but you're 80% of your potential height. And I'm 80% of my potential, my potential height, but I'm a 14-year-old. Technically, we could go up against each other because we are at the right um, but basically a, a similar height and weight. Um, and the whole theory behind that is for us, if you're an early developer, it gives you more of a challenge beyond just, so it gives you more of a challenge because you're not able to physically dominate me. So I'm two years older than you. You can't just run rings around me. You might still be able to, but you can't technically, you shouldn't be able to run rings around me. You shouldn't be able to boss me off a ball, things like that. Um, also with the late maturers, they are then put into groups where they are, again, physically matched. They're not being absolutely smashed off a ball. They're able to, to physically match up against their peers. Also, it puts uh, a greater degree of preference on the technical aspect of both early and late developers. So, it's, so as an early developer, you are now having to rely more, more on your technical skill than just your physicality. Same for the um, late developers. And the whole theory is late developers have an opportunity to shine in an, in, in, in an environment where often they might get overlooked. So kind of looking at maturation ages now, early developers for girls in my situation can be as low as nine, 10 years old. Could, there's times where even physical maturity is coming as low as eight years old, which is just ridiculous. Um, and then late maturers could be a lot later. They could be 14, 15 years old. So you, you look at the disparity in the gap there. There's a lot of years, potentially. So it's, in theory, like everything else, it's a great idea. In practice, there are issues. Um, I don't know if you want me to talk about the issues, yeah. right? Yeah, please do. Um, so the biggest one for me is the psychological effect. Um, as as sports scientists and SNC coaches, we often don't think about that too much. We think about purely the physical aspect. So like in football, they've got something called a four-corner model. 
So it's the tactical corner, technical corner, physical corner, and the psychological corner. So as an SNC sports scientist, most of my time is spent in the physical corner. But I quite like to look at the the I, I like to have good knowledge about all four corners, but I like the psychology corner especially. So psychologically, for an early developer, you've gone from a situation potentially if you are if you've just come into an academy, for an example, if you've been signed up for an academy because you're one of those Q1 players who's just a monster and has dominated for two or three years at school, county level and all that kind of stuff. You've come into an academy and they have the luxury of being able to buy a band because of the numbers they have at the academy. You've now gone from an environment where you've been king to a small fish in a massive pond that's not necessarily going to bring out the best trait in you you are it might psychologically not scar you but might have an effect you've you suddenly had to rely you've relied on something for so long and now you're going to have to change your tactics and some kids have just not been able to handle that pure and simple they've not been able to go they've not been able to handle the pressure that with that with with what comes with that so what they've been seen as been scouted as a talent id they soon unfortunately drop out. So you have a lot of dropouts that way just because the demands that are put on academy players nowadays, it's far more about the technical and tactical. The physical is reasonably easy to achieve if it's already there as a base. Even if it isn't, those are things you can work on. And academies, unfortunately, time some a lot of academies i think they do it very well at brighton across the boys and, and girls group a lot of other academies they don't give time unfortunately just because you're dealing with vast vast sums of money in some in some cases and that kid that you've talent id'd to say he's going to be the next big thing if he's if he's not that sometimes within one season or half a season i've seen kids canned after a month kind of thing because they've just no one's looked no one's looked beyond actually what's going on they've looked at technically tactically they're not sufficient and they're not keeping up physically so psychological corner no one's gone actually what's going on here should we just have a chat with him should we just go have you found it they they do in bits and i'm not saying not every academy do it but they do in bits but that is one of the things that's ignored and then looking at rate maturers that physical battle that they've been used to with bigger kids is not there anymore. So that challenge of having to calculate ways to deal with someone who's bigger and more physically dominant than you isn't there anymore. You're then coming up against kids with the same size. You're then going to have to learn maybe potentially another new set of skill sets, which necessarily isn't a negative. It isn't a negative because you're challenging them in a different way. But for me, that kind of resilience might not be there as much just because there's nothing like that the whole David and Goliath thing. You, you're having to really battle against someone who just can dominate you physically. But if you're able to get the better of them, that's such an achievement for you and, and like such a boost for you. Um, but like one advantage of the late mature stuff is with it is they might come out of their shells a bit more as well. So typically, I don't know, actually, I don't know if it's typical, but from my experiences, late maturers tend to be a bit more introvert, a bit more within themselves, just because they've got other big ass kids around them and they can't really do much about that. But yeah, like again, got to reiterate, by abandoning should never be something done in isolation. It should be across multiple 
ways of doing it. So you might drop in a buy a band. You wouldn't buy a band for a whole season because, well, that's just not how it works. You can't, you have buy a band in competitive games now, but at the end of the day, chronological age games dominate buy a banding games all the time. No sport just does purely buy a banding games. You don't train buy a banding. As a concept, great. I do see its merits, but not in isolation. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I think, as you said, one of the big things for me is when you've got a kid who's used to bossing his games because he's up against biologically younger uh, competitors, as you said, then when they go up to... So one of the things I've um, jotted down in preparing for this uh, podcast was uh, a chap called Kev Mannion who works for Gloucester Rugby. And uh, he said how big they were on the psychosocial skills because if you've got a kid who say, I don't know, at... 17 18 19 is breaking into the first team with uh international players or small senior players they need to be able to shake their hand look in the eye and you know be part of that dressing room beyond just i'm a player on the pitch and uh i don't know whether you've got any thoughts on uh how you would i don't know keep tabs on someone's psychosocial development the same way you might take weight height jump metrics etc um to track their physical progress. I don't know whether you've got any thoughts on that. I think that's more of a personal thing. I wouldn't say you wouldn't want to do a questionnaire or anything like no. that. I think it's, if you make it so sanitized, they won't tell you the truth really. Mm-hmm. Um, it's having, uh, the biggest thing is having the little, I like to call them little just dropping conversations. So you might, it might be just instances where you're walking to the training pitch or he's coming into the gym. He's the first in or something like that. And you'll just have a conversation. How's it going? How's your day been? Um, how are you finding training at the minute? So especially, as you said, if you've got a kid who's transitioned from under-18s up to first team, um, they've gone from an environment where they might be the one who's loudest, who's the jack the lad and stuff like that. Um, and he's, then they go into an environment where they are, they're just they're either quiet or whether they've, they've piped up and they've been told to shut up pretty much. <laughs> it's suddenly, a, I think, like Roy Keane had a, a great story about like kids in Manchester United where they had to used to do have to be uh, apprentices when they're coming up to first team. So he was saying like how he gave like David Beckham, Gary Neville, Phil Neville absolute hell when they first came up just to get the gauge of them to see whether they're they're ready for this environment. And um, I guess he's probably not the best example on how to approach this, but it's it's a complete. I think it's a massive jump. Each age group that you go up is a massive jump. So even from under fourteens to sixteens, I'm sure you'll see. Like I'll see character changes this year from like the real dominant leading on the fourteens to sixteens, and then that will change, and then sixteens up to our under twenty ones. Um, that's the thing with girls football. Like it's not a small jump. It's always just like two or three years jump instantly you're going from from a 16 year old playing against 14 and 15 year olds to suddenly playing against 18 19 20 21 year olds in one age group so it's a little bit different in that way um but yeah the psychosocial stuff is for me i'm a big believer in having these mini conversations all the time with people because you get to find out so much more more about them when they're just relaxed and talking to you about it um people reveal a lot more about that's just their day and then if that red flag starts coming up to you and you think actually this is something I might need to, someone needs to intervene, 
then for us, we obviously have safeguarding and all this kind of stuff that we can go to. Oh, actually, all clubs have it now, don't they? Mm. So they all have access to safeguarding and stuff like that, whether it is a safeguarding issue. If it's just... Um, if it is just that fear of going up to the next level, then it's potentially having bringing in someone from the first team who can almost mentor them. Um, someone who's been through a similar role. The head coach might be in a really good light and may not noticed during sessions because he's got a million and one things going through his head. So I might be bringing them into conversations. It's just finding someone they can relate to. And sometimes you are the one they can relate to, which is which is always odd as an SEC coach. You just think, I'm, I'm just here to make you strong and fast while you're relating to me. But it's... Um, yeah, I think sometimes if you have the conversation, they feel 10 times better about it and you see a change and you can affect that change beyond just making them strong and fast. I really like what you said there about a drop-in conversation because I think as uh, strength and conditioning, it's almost becoming, or in certain people, it's becoming more and more of a data-driven profession. And as you said, everyone wants a questionnaire, everyone wants a number on a 1 to 10 scale and uh, some things just don't work like that. And as you said, if you for example, try to track a psychosocial development in terms of here's a questionnaire, fill it out. There, I mean, it's, it's the same for me. As soon as someone gives me a questionnaire, I'm thinking, oh, well, what, what are you going to do with this? And uh, how is my response going to be interpreted? And you start overthinking everything to the point where you're like, oh, well, I'll just put what I think they want me to hear rather than, as you said, that dropping conversation of, yeah, actually, I'm struggling at the moment. I can't use my physical size as much as I thought I could. And I just don't get on with, I don't know, the other age group or whatever. Yeah, I think um, I think the funny thing with kids is it's it's always like even simple things like taking RPEs at the end of a session. It's, oh, what what did you say about that session? What number have you put? And it's like, no, it's how did you feel about it? Can you just give me your honest conversation? I think, um, yeah, questionnaires, just there's a time and a place for it. And definitely if you're, if someone's struggling, on the psychosocial stuff, it's questionnaire is not going to do it. Mm. And in terms of the dropping conversation, we spoke a little bit off air um, and we won't go too much into depth on it, but we spoke a little bit off air about the impact of, for example, the menstrual cycle uh, on performance in female athletics. Um, how do you, or firstly, what experience have you had of either these conversations or how it's affected uh, performance I think it is it's such is such a new it's a new topic in terms of research, and there is no definitive set of papers or papers that tells me this is the drop in performance and this is the data what the data says it's all very potentially there could be this issue if you if you don't look at it um Obviously, the different stages of the menstrual cycle during ovulation, we know there's a spike in estrogen, there's a spike in in in, in the hormones. Um, for me, the biggest thing um, I've learned is just mood changes is a massive one. Um, I've had had my head bitten off a couple of times, and uh, that's purely because obviously they've had a tough day and they're going through going through their cycle at that point. Um, and then we've got obviously evidence of lower back pain, things like uh, and things like that. So it's it's adjusting stuff um, and not being completely rigid to your program. Um, we don't currently collect that data under fourteen and sixteen level. I again have I have tried to have the conversation, but as a man, I don't think I'm the best person 
for the girls to feel comfortable talking to. So I have, I have, I said, think I said it to you. I have kind of the quite easy privilege of having. I can, I can, I can get them to talk to the physios and rehabbers who are women, and they can, they can have that conversation, and then the information get relayed to me. We, we are going to try and put some sort of survey in this this season. Um, but for me, in terms of programming considerations, it's just realizing that if they've come in in a bad state or in they're in a mood or they're, they're upset about something, you have got to make the environment as friendly as possible to them. And it's not molly coddling them. It's not saying, I'll oh, go sit in a corner and don't do anything. It's going, right, we're still going to get something done today. But what I want you to do is this, this and that instead. So typical one I had last year was um, hex bar deadlift was on the program for that phase for this age group and there was a girl going on oh, my lower back's really hurting so all the triggers okay how have you been today what what would you say how's your day been our oh, day's been really shit i've been really down um got quite frustrated and angry um at no point did i ever say are you going through your period or anything like that i just said okay um right let's look at doing something else um what would you like to do i literally said to her and she went Honestly, I want to go home. And I went, well, that's not really an option. But in here, what would you like to do? She goes, oh, I'd quite like to do some bikes and rowing, a bit of conditioning. So I just set her up a task, a little bit of conditioning on the rower. And she went, look, thank you so much for that. I feel so much better. Can take my stress out. I think I did boxing with one of them once. Just beat the crap out of something for a bit. And they just feel much better, much less stressed about the little things. Um and that's the key, like prog- the programs that people write now are unbelievable. You look at the program, the level of detail, how things flow through the season, but everyone knows that this could all go out the window at the second and coronavirus and this whole situation has, has proved that it can go out the window any second. So being adaptable, being able to, to change things on the fly is a massive thing for me. If if I if if I'm put a challenge forward, one of the things I used to look at my like, coaches that I was hiring for internships is if I put a problem in front of you, what what's your coping what's your coping mechanism? How do you solve that problem? Do you still try and stick to your plan, or do you go around it and say, actually, is there something that we can do? If a girl is, if if someone comes up and says, I don't really fancy front, front squatting today, it's like, can you squat today still? It's like, yeah, I can still squat, um, but I don't really want to. Okay, get on a deadlift or X bar then instead. Still getting the lower body output strength measure, everything you want. It's just not on their back or shoulders because they're, they're struggling with it, their pain there. So be adaptable. A squat is a squat at the end of the day. It doesn't matter what kind you do you're still looking to get strength in the lower body and up the, a little bit of core, core training and all that kind of stuff at the same time. So yeah, flexibility and adaptability. Yeah. A, a couple of things that I've sort of jotted down as you've been speaking there, because I think for me, a sort of hallmark of all the good coaches that I've spoken to is you can be as detailed as you want in your programming, but the reality is so few things matter as much as, as strength and conditioning coaches, because this is our passion. So few things matter as much as we perceive them to matter. Um, And the other thing I jot down is just the, for example, you know, that one day of, or I don't know, four sets of six hex bar deadlift or whatever it was for that day, that 
that one session or that one set wouldn't have made realistically any difference to her. But if you just said, no, you must deadlift. I've written the program. It says deadlift. Like there's that relationship with that athlete just ruined. It's, it's just like, it's a right. It would have been a write-off of the whole session. Literally. She would have, I think as an individual, even if I was put in that situation, I, it would have been a write-off of the whole session. I would have been annoyed the whole session. It would have affected my football session. And that's, my whole day of just a crap day because because something's happened in school. I've come, I've I've kind of been reasonably honest with my coach on what's going on. He's figured it out, but he still ignored it. Yeah. So it's just it's a bit of just empathy at the end of the day, and just saying, look, I don't really care what you do, but we still need to get an outcome mm. because you're here to get an outcome. It's not about I can't let you lie down and do nothing. Even if you're injured, I still want you to train to some degree. I still want you to get some sort of outcome. Um, and that's that's always how I try and think when yeah. you're in the field. Yeah, and I like that because it's like, yes, there are options, but there's also boundaries of, yes, you can do this, but absolutely I'm not letting you go home because then what kind of message does that send us? As you said, oh, well, so-and-so had this issue and it's, oh, well, I've got this issue or, oh, well, I've got yeah. this injury. And then before you know it, that one decision has then undermined the whole program itself. True. Okay. I just in just last few questions in uh, wrapping up one question I ask uh, all my guests is if you could observe one coach with their athletes, who would you observe and why? Um, this is one I thought, thought I, I actually had to just generally think about this, but um, there's always one guy I go back to is a guy called Charlie Francis. So he's um Rightly or wrongly, he was Ben Johnson's coach. So when when the whole Seoul Olympics and the whole drug cheating go went, and he's he's been he's been in the environment of a lot of of drug cheats. So unfortunately, you you look you look at that. If you look at that, you think, why would you ever want to like or appreciate what that guy does? Um, but Kind of one of the books I read, and it was it was literally a cover to cover jobs, was a book called Speed Trap. Um, and he goes through kind of he goes through his system of um, of training, and it was just it was just class. It was it was so it was so detailed, but yet so simple as well. It was everything had everything to the minutest drill set and rep had an ultimate purpose and it was all driven to the one goal and it was athlete specific. It was, it wasn't sports specific. It was sports related. As we said before, it was just, it's kind of, if I ever get to a level anywhere near that, I'll be buzzing. <laughs> Basically be absolutely buzzing. It's, is is it just looks like it's just someone who's just very, very, very good at their craft. And, you know, when you just meet people who, can simplify something for you but yet explain really complex concepts that's i think he's one of those guys um but yeah unfortunately his career is very much tarnished by all the drug cheating around it which i don't know if he's directly involved with it or whatever but as a coach i really i just massively appreciated his knowledge and how simple he made that knowledge come across yeah, and then the Charlie Francis stuff that I've come across, what I like is uh, it's just so transferable. Like one of the yeah. uh, one of the things 
well, a couple of things he says if it looks right it flies right like if uh if you have no knowledge of athletics you can probably still appreciate the beauty of someone being technically proficient and uh i think this is a charlie francis one but i know he talks about the high low system and uh i think this is an author paraphrasing charlie francis but uh said something like uh you are lukewarm and i'll spit you out and basically say look you either have a high day or you have a low day if you mess with the in-between stuff it's just unnecessary fatigue and now you can't do the heavy explosive efforts that you should be doing because you're fatigued and you're not getting any extra benefit as a result of those sort of lukewarm type sessions. Yeah, that's exactly what I love is just, he just, that whole thing of if it looks right and flies right is exactly kind of how I look, yeah, how I look at exercises. So, you know, kind of to be honest, I haven't coached it for ages, but when I was, when as part of the UKSC assessment is the ollie lifting and all that kind of stuff. And for me, it's, what 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 is the outcome measure that you want to get from an Olympic lift? Then does it have to look textbook to that that um, perfect training model? Or if you're getting the the basics of the triple extension right, you're catching right, and you're getting the recovery right, what's the problem? Yeah, yeah, I don't... Right. you're not going to kill yourself. You're fine. <laughs> yeah, and it's very easy as an SNC SNC coaches to be like overly analytical and being like oh it doesn't look like an olympic lift should and it's like well is the adaptation there or are you just trying to make your point because you feel like you have to justify it to you know other people 100 you mentioned uh you mentioned speed trap as uh obviously a preferred read of charlie francis is there any other recommended resources that you have enjoyed using or that you would uh recommend to others yeah, um, so one, for the, as we came, touched on the generalist aspect range by Epstein. Um, so how generalists succeed in a specialized world. Um, again, concepts are really simple to grasp. Um, a genuine, really interesting read in terms of the anecdotes and the people he puts forward. Um, and it, it, it just goes to show that that whole jack of all trades is just nonsense it's generalists can succeed really well and our environment our whole our whole job spec i think is actually is driven to generalists is really driven to generalists there's especially in the uk market it's not snc is still seen as a little bit in, in its infancy when I, I still think it'll be another five to 10 years until we start seeing really specific strength coaches and really specific speed coaches. There's a little bit of dribbling in there now, now and then. Um, Vingo, one of the a guy called Jason Dodu, um, yeah. does his speed work. So yeah, no, he's, he's one of the, like, he's a very specific speed coach who coaches, who does like consultancy work with Bath and play, places like that. But, at the end of the day, he's one of the ones, few people I've seen who's really specialist at, at that thing. So that's a great book and an easy read, I'd say. What, what book was that, sorry? Uh, range. Oh, Range. I thought we meant Jonas Dodo's book. No, 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 no. Sorry, I was just plugging his website. <laughs> no, do, do, by all means. And then um, Bounce. It's a talent and myth and, pa- uh, uh, talent and, myth and the power of practice. So Matthew, uh, Matthew Saeed. Discord. So 
he's a big believer in that 10,000 hour rule to perfect mm. or master something. I, I'm not sure. I don't know when people pull out these numbers from. I don't like, you know, 10,000 hours, 10,000 steps. It's always a weird one. I don't know why 10,000 seems like a good number. Yeah. Funny enough, the, um, I don't know if this is to do with the steps or something else, but I, oh, sorry, I think it might be to do with how tall Everest is or something like that, but they measured it and it was exactly whatever the distance is. And I'm not going to say it because I myself sound stupid, but let's imagine, I don't know, hypothetically, it's 2,000. They measured it and it was exactly 2,000 meters above sea level or yeah. whatever it is. And basically the people who measured it were like, no one will believe we've actually climbed it, measured it, scaled it. If we say it's exactly this. Um, so they change it. But with the 10,000 step rule, I've definitely watched a documentary somewhere where they calculated what people would have to walk. And I don't know, let's say it was 9,762 or whatever it was. And they were just, ah, oh, 10,000 is just easier. And they basically found out that there's no scientific basis for 10,000. Mm. Um, but yeah, it is funny how people react to uh, round numbers and whatnot. That always does amuse me. Yeah, like so. There's it's this book, as I said, harps on about the ten thousand hour rule, but it's it's just it's basically saying that yeah, those those kids who are who are talented or who have great potential, seen at a younger age, again, often drop out because. Uh, of, of of pressures and all that kind of stuff that they they may have got um, at a younger age, but the kids who have worked, have to work twice as hard, have practiced for elongated periods. He gives examples from like really niche sports like table tennis and gymnastics and all that kind of stuff. And um, obviously, gymnastics is just a different breed of athlete, just because they start at a stupidly young age and retire at like fourteen or whatever it is, kind of thing. Um, but I think again, it's a really easy, really easy read. It's not something that everyone will agree with, and there's parts in there I'm just like, no, that's complete nonsense. Um, but again, he puts his arguments forward. So for every claim that he makes, he puts a good counter argument for why he's made that claim, and he actually looks at the negatives as well. So again, he's he's a good author, and he's released a couple of other books, which I can't think of the title straight from from now. But he's a he's a good author. It's funny you mentioned that because I was again the title eludes me, but um, I've seen him speak live, and uh, I know one of his former books prior to Range is just on the nature nurture argument, and uh, he's, he's got a brilliant TED talk. Which if people don't want to read his previous book, then just go and watch that. Um, but the uh, I can't remember whether it's David Epstein who presents the argument, or I think it might have been um, a chap called Daz Drake who I've had on the podcast previously. But his main critique of the 10,000 hour rule is what constitutes an hour. Um, now, obviously early specialization is a whole topic in itself, but for example, if, uh, I don't know, if I spend an hour a week with a psychologist, does that count towards my 10,000 hour rule? Or for example, if we're talking about a multi-sport athlete, like I think Federer didn't seriously pursue tennis until 14, I think, or something like that. So does that mean all the sport he did prior to tennis, or prior to being 14, does that count towards his uh, 10,000 hours? Like, at what point are you like, that counts, that doesn't, and, you know, it's just, uh, for me, it's just so overly simplistic. Like, if I have 10,000 hours, like, I always use it like as a boxing fan, I was thinking if I had 10,000 hours being coached by someone like Freddie Roach, who's got more world champions than I think any other boxing coach, versus 10,000 hours at my local gym, like, there's just too many uh, 
there's too many yeah too many variables. a bit like what we were saying with uh, using biobanding in isolation like too many variables for that to be just the one answer yeah it's um i think a huge believer in that multi-sports thing it's it it surely has to count <laughs> if you look at it, it surely has to count to development um but yeah kind of we encourage them massively at the academy um, so summer, it's don't just go and do football. Don't just go and do running. Try other sports that you might not have. And like yesterday, we were on a Zoom call and they were saying, yeah, I, I tried basketball for the first time. I loved it. It's really good. Um, why do you love it? Because um, you've got that physical aspect to it. Playing basketball with your brother and the, the change of direction is a little bit more progressive and sharper than it would be in football. So, yeah, hopefully it puts them in good stead when they come back for testing next week. Fingers crossed, fingers crossed. Uh, and if people, if you were to give people sort of one key take home from uh, our chat today, what would you like that to be? Be open to multiple things. Be open to multiple avenues. Do not see generalism as a negative. It's, it's your part, I really believe it's your path to success. If you have multiple strings to your bow, you, you can recall on, it's going to take experience you can't be a generalist overnight. Um, I firmly believe that you need to be exposed to several environments and understand where people are coming from and what those environments entail, the cultures and all that kind of stuff. But if you, if you have the end goal of wanting to coach Usain Bolt, you need to understand several processes to get the best out of him. And I think athletes appreciate more when you can, recall on several different scenarios instead of just the same thing yeah i i like that a lot superbly done and finally where can people reach out to you if they have any questions for you yeah i'm not a massive social media man if i'm gonna be honest so um i think the one that i use regularly is linkedin so it's just just my full name hamza ahmed and then um i can leave my email address with you at the end as well um, Wicked. Share. awesome i can put that along with the uh book recommendations in the uh in the show notes but thank you very much for your time hammy that's uh that's been a fantastic two hours i've really enjoyed uh picking your brains jesus two hours i didn't even realize <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah thanks again for having me on the show it's uh, my first one if you can believe it um and it's it's been really really eye-opening and really enlightening so thanks again i've uh, really enjoyed it as i said there's uh several more avenues uh, we could have dived down as well so uh, thank you very much for your time All right. cheers thank you very much thank you for listening to episode number 23 of the platform to perform podcast with myself todd davidson and today's guest brighton ladies strength and conditioning coach hamza ahmed if you've enjoyed the show please leave us a review via your preferred platform and if you're in a position to support the podcast or you simply want access to the exclusive educational strength and conditioning content that I've been releasing via my Patreon, then head over to www.patreon.com forward slash Todd Davidson P2P Coaching. Thank you for listening and I'll catch you again in the next episode.